Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, May 20th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's interview concerns a topic that is very dear to my heart. Not too long ago, I have had a friend face a terrible diagnosis, ALS. Those are words that you never want to hear from your neurologist. And I spent part of my scientific career working at the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF, where I did a postdoc. I saw firsthand how devastating neurodegenerative diseases are. Now, I did that postdoc more than 10 years ago. And even at that time, we really felt very hopeful that a cure for many of these diseases was just around the corner. After all, we had spent a long time studying the mechanisms of these diseases, and we felt like we had a pretty good handle of what was going on. So it was just a matter of getting the right treatments into the pipeline and out to the patients. But since then, trial after trial after trial has failed. So some people are arguing that it's time for a new perspective. Enter the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Now, one of the other common topics of conversation in the Bay Area where I live these days is the coming minting of many millionaires over the next year as several tech companies have gone public. Well, in 2015, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was launched to commemorate the birth of the daughter of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan. They promised to invest up to a billion dollars in Facebook shares in each of the next three years. By some accounts, they have pledged that 99% of their Facebook wealth, valued at $45 billion, will eventually be part of this initiative. That's a lot of money. And the question is, with that kind of money, can they solve the kinds of problems that have been facing scientists and patients over the last few decades? Full disclosure, Kishore Hari, the co-host of Inquiring Minds, is now an employee at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And he introduced me to Katya Bros, who's the science program officer. She's also a fellow neuroscientist, having done her graduate work, her PhD in biochemistry, also from UCSF. There, she works in the lab of Marc Tessé-Levine, where she investigated the guidance mechanisms that axons use when they're developing in the spinal cord. After her graduate work, she also spent a lot of time on the editorial team at Cell Press, And for over a decade, she was the editor-in-chief of Neuron, one of the major journals that neuroscientists aspire to publish in. 
Since it's her job to lead the program now at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, I decided to talk to her about the prospects and the progress in neurodegenerative disease treatment. Katya Bros, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Great to be here. So a lot of people have heard about diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but I think people aren't really clear just how vast the spectrum of neurodegeneration is. So can you tell us a little bit about neurodegeneration as we understand it? Yeah, I, neurodegenerative diseases, it's, it's really a broad class of disorders. A lot of people tend to think of the diseases that you mentioned, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, maybe they know someone who has ALS or Huntington's. But really, this is a collection of you know hundreds of disorders, some of them very rare, some super common, like like Alzheimer's. And what they have in common is that ultimately these diseases lead to the destruction of nerve cells in your brain and peripheral nervous system. There's a lot more going on in these diseases than just that. That's sort of the end stage where they all end up. They're all, for the most part, universally fatal. But it's it's more than just what we think about as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. It's worth thinking about the numbers for these disorders because um, the numbers are, are really quite breathtaking. So 5 million people have Alzheimer's in the United States today, 50 million um, worldwide. It's not a disease, obviously, of just um, the United States and certainly not just of the Western world. Alzheimer's is actually going up at a dramatic clip in the developing world, so also worth thinking about. Uh, 500,000 new people are diagnosed every year. And the amount of money that we spend on Alzheimer's when we think about both healthcare costs, sort of loss of income and care for family providers is vast. So it's about $300 billion right now. 30 years from now, the numbers are expected to triple. We're talking about a trillion dollars a year just spent on Alzheimer's care um, and uh, treatment. And right now it's an incurable disease. It's the fifth leading cause of death. Um, and obviously, as our population ages, the numbers are just going to go up. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what, I, what I've been hearing, that, you know, we're, we're facing an epidemic of, you know, huge proportions, especially right. because, you know, diseases like Alzheimer's really have a huge burden on society because the person really needs round-the-clock care eventually, and sometimes for years. That's right. And also we're thinking about, although we think of Alzheimer's and some of the other neurodegenerative conditions as diseases of aging, um, they're not diseases of normal aging. Um, our population is aging, and so the numbers are going to go up just because of that. But right now, 5% of people with AD are younger than 65. So if you think about it from that perspective, think about the fact that there's 5 million now, 5% is not a small number of people. Is there any any sense, though, that some of these numbers are kind of capping off? So I, I had this one, I, I actually don't remember where I read this, but it was this idea that because we are taking better care of our bodies now, that maybe the proportion of people who develop Alzheimer's disease, say, over the age of 80 is somewhat declining. So if, if it used to be 50%, maybe it's 40% now. Is that true? Or do we not see that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a question that somebody with more kind of detailed knowledge of epidemiology should be answering. But I think in in actuality, the, the numbers might be going in the opposite direction for similar reasons. As we're kind of surviving the heart attacks that might have killed us in our 40s and 50s, right, there's more of us are going to be getting older. And the older you get, um, the more likely it is that one of these conditions kind of might come to play in your life. And it's not just Alzheimer's. I mean, Parkinson's is... Um, also a disease where there's a million people in the U.S. with Parkinson's, 10 million worldwide, there's 60,000 new cases a year. Uh, the average age is 60. Um, but again, it's not a disease that's exclusive to aging populations. People can get Parkinson's um, in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. So 
It seems like the biggest risk factor, though, is still age, even though it's hitting people who are younger. And so, you know, I've heard people say, look, you know, we really should be spending a lot of money talking about the basic biology of aging, because, you know, if 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 lung cancer is caused by smoking uh, and you don't try to get people to stop smoking, you know, (laughs) then, you know, you can treat lung cancer all you want, but you can have a much bigger impact if you treat if you understand sort of the basic biology of aging. What do you you think about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think aging is one of these um, kind of ubiquitous factors that, you know, we're all going to age and sort of understanding um, healthy aging and what goes awry in aging is important. And I think it's going to be important foundational information that will help us not just understand neurodegenerative disorders, but other disorders of aging. Um, There is a movement now, and I think it's like a really good turn for the field to be trying to kind of think about these brain disorders or what people have thought of as brain disorders as disorders of the whole body, of the whole person, right? And um, as a neuroscientist, I know you're a neuroscientist as well, this, uh, for us, I think it's probably kind of radical, right? Putting the brain back on the body. People don't think about that a lot in the neurosciences. Yeah, I mean, I came of age during the decade of the brain in the 90s, right, where it was like, wait a minute, we have the brain. And it's like, but it's encased in something. That's right. (laughs) Right. And thinking about issues like, um, like metabolism, obesity, diabetes, um, cardiovascular issues. I mean, you know, Alzheimer's is a really good example. I mean, we know there's forms of Alzheimer's that are very tightly linked to cardiovascular issues. Yeah, I mean, that gets me to some of the mechanisms, which, you know, I think a a lot of people might not understand why it is that we still have incurable disease like Alzheimer's, like why it's incurable, because we've been working on it for a long time. And even in the 90s, I remember there was a lot of hope that a cure was around the corner because we thought we had figured out the mechanism, you know, amyloid, beta amyloid, uh, plaques and tangles. And and so tell us a little bit about the history of um, sort of the approach to trying to cure or treat Alzheimer's and why that's failed. Yeah, I mean, so we, we've known about um, Alzheimer's and some of these diseases for a long time, right? I mean, there, Alzheimer's is named after um, a pathologist from the late 19th century. And most of these diseases were initially identified, obviously looking at patients who had certain conditions and symptoms, but ultimately they were sort of identified based on their pathological features. And we've known about the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's for, for a long time, for over a century. Um, I think it was more or less in the last 20 years with kind of the window that genetics gave us on what might cause Alzheimer's that really kind of the spotlight started being focused on this um, amyloid hypothesis that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, which really has at its center the idea of kind of toxic aggregates formed from the amyloid protein. And that, you know, we learned about that initially from the genetics. Uh, The genetics also taught us about other players in that cascade, about um, proteins like presenilin that are involved in cleaving the amyloid protein that ultimately leads to this aggregation cascade. We've learned about uh, proteins like tau, which is also involved in Alzheimer's. And so I think we, it's not that the field, let's say in the case of Alzheimer's, hasn't been working fast and furiously on this or rigorously. I think there's been um, a lot of attention, a lot of um, commitment to solving this problem, a lot of money, um, not just from you know, places like the NIH, but also biotech, pharma, and other stakeholders. And I think one reason why it's been hard to develop cures is it's just hard. <laughs> Biology and especially kind of the interface between biology and then kind of the clinical development pipeline is just difficult, right? So I think sort of going after the amyloid cascade was a completely, you know, reasonable hypothesis to pursue. I think where 
maybe one can lob more criticism at us at the field collectively is the degree to which we focus so exclusively on this on this one hypothesis. Um, it might turn out to be right, right? Or it might turn out to be right in part, but I think it has also limited our attention on potentially other mechanisms that might be contributing either in other ways or together with that cascade hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, it seems like every year there's another drug that hits some part of this amyloid cascade and it fails. Like, I mean, they've all failed, which is kind of spectacular in terms of, you know, and yet, right. yet the hypothesis lives on, which which I agree with you. There's lots of evidence to suggest that there's a lot a lot there there, but we just seem not to be able to target it or stop it from occurring with drugs. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think um, it's worth also kind of remembering that, it, you know, the, the failure of a clinical trial is the failure of a specific clinical trial. And I think it's sort of the compendium of the evidence from multiple failures that really makes us want to kind of think differently and think kind of maybe towards other possibilities. I think even in the case of these recent clinical trials failures for Alzheimer's, I mean, there's still a lot of ideas about the way those trials were done. For instance, the um, the time period that was being targeted, really, most of them now are at not late, late stages of the disease, but usually at the point where somebody would have um, MCI or mild cognitive impairment. So before it's truly um, kind of dementia. But there's a lot of thinking right now that you really need to treat these diseases in something that a lot of people refer to as the prodromal period. So the period when the disease has probably been triggered, uh, but isn't yet manifesting itself in terms of symptoms. But we don't really even know when that is or what to look for. And, you know, that even setting the science of that aside, sort of the idea of treating effectively healthy individuals who may bear some risk of getting Alzheimer's, but aren't kind of predicted with high certainty to develop Alzheimer's, you know, it has its own problems. Yeah. So, I mean, even even in diseases where there seems to be a more clear link between genetics and outcomes, like, um, you know, the BRCA2 or BRCA1 mm -hmm. positive gene mutation for breast cancer, you know, even there, there's a lot of controversy. Do you get a prophylactic double mastectomy? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and I think that that's not a simple question to answer. So, so do you do we have any biomarkers at all of the prodromal stage beyond just the genetics? So, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis right now on biomarkers for sure. I mean, there's obviously a lot of attention to to genetics and genetic risk factors. I mean, the the one for Alzheimer's that I think many people will know about is um, something called ApoE, and so your ApoE status, whether you have a two version or a four version. Um, can confer risk. It's not, you know, obviously certainty to develop disease, but people with ApoE4 variants have higher risk. ApoE2 is thought to be protected. Um, why that is and what the biology for that is, uh, mechanistically, we have really no idea. Um, there are new um, imaging methods to look at amyloid accumulation in the brain um, earlier. I mean, obviously, um, that's not something that's applied to, to normal, healthy people, right? That's part of uh, the diagnostic path that a, that a patient might go through. Um, if you're in a family that has genetic risk, maybe you might be a part of a study that would have that kind of um, amyloid PET imaging as part of the trial. But that's not something that most of us are going to our you know, clinicians for on a regular basis. 
Yeah, I mean, if it ever was kind of like a PSA count thing where, you know, every every man of a certain age goes to get his PSA count checked. And, and now we, we have this problem where there's a high false positive rate, even if it's only 5%, but every man does it and the rate of cancer is 2%, you know, you've got a problem. Um, do you see that as potentially like, do you think that ultimately we are moving towards a place where, you know, everyone's going to get this amyloid imaging eventually and we might face this this high false positive problem? Or do you just think it's not, that's probably not where we're going. You know, I don't think that has been so much like a part of the main conversation yet. Um, I think, you know, down the road at some point, um, I think sort of thinking about kind of population based screening, but that I really don't think is part of the conversation right now. I mean, there's definitely efforts looking at biomarkers um, that you could detect in your blood or CSF. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a lumbar puncture to get CSF is still not something that the average person is going to get from their clinician. But maybe if you're in a family at risk, that might make more sense. Um, a blood biomarker, I think, would be a different thing. Um, those are being developed both for amyloid and tau. Um, but right now, I think there's still just kind of problems with knowing how good those biomarkers are. I mean, the other thing I think that the biomarkers would be really important for, aside from diagnosis, is really in the clinical trials infrastructure and being able to track disease progression or how well somebody might be responding to a drug. I think also um, people are thinking about biomarkers, also combined with genetic biomarkers, as a way to stratify populations. I mean, we know this already, that um, not every person who develops Alzheimer's is like every other person who develops Alzheimer's. And in fact, um, there's quite a high rate of misdiagnosis. Um, and we can talk a little bit about maybe uh, frontotemporal dementia, which is often mistaken for Alzheimer's. Um, it is also true that in older populations, it's uh, there's a high likelihood that when people look post-mortem, right? So I can't really access your brain until honestly you're dead. And at that point, many people, uh, especially older people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's will turn out to also have um, inclusions that are more representative of Parkinson's or FTD. And so, you know, kind of a mixed diagnosis is probably more the norm than people realize. And ultimately for clinical trial, that's probably what's going to have to happen. That It will be a lot like cancer, right? That mm -hmm. your clinician or your clinical team will try to understand kind of what form of Alzheimer's that you have, and then therapeutics would be targeted to that. I mean, that's the way cancer has gone. Um, I mean, it used to be, you know, cancer was kind of always sort of pathologically diagnosed for maybe a tumor sample. We obviously can't get a sample of your brain right now. But now, I mean, it's combined with genetics, sequencing of the tumor, kind of understanding other aspects of the disease to really kind of target those therapies in a more personalized way. Yeah, we've, we've, we've gone from defining cancer as this, you know, organ of origin to defining it more towards it by its genetics. Like, is it? Yeah. And just to kind of underscore how complicated the relationship is between pathology and symptoms. You know, I, I remember reading the story um, from one of the classic nun study papers. Um, you know, these are these are people who studied a, a population of nuns because they have very similar life experiences. They don't get pregnant. They don't drink much alcohol. So a lot of variables are taken away. And so you can just compare, you know, cognitive outcomes, uh, you know, across a, a sort of large population of, of people relatively. And I, I remember the story of Sister Mary, who, uh, you know, died when she was almost 102. And uh, she was you know, a whippersnapper, right? Uh, you know, her MMSE, her, her cognitive scores were very high for her age when she died. And so, but when they looked at her brain, it had atrophied and was full of plaques and tangles. 
And so, you know, it's like it was interesting to see, like you, you looking at the slides alone, you would have thought this person would have had symptoms of Alzheimer's. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely people who die of um, some other cause and they turn out to have plaques and tangles all over their brain and were cognitively normal to mm-hmm. the end. Right. Yeah. So can you give us any specifics on, on how you think we're going to sort of break into some of these biological questions? Yeah, I think right now is a really interesting and exciting time around technology development in biology. And that's affording us kind of new, again, windows into the biology. And so we talked earlier about genetics kind of pointing the spotlights at certain proteins and pathways. And right now, I mean, I think we're having greater and greater access to then manipulating those pathways. And so um, tools like stem cells that we can derive from patients while they're still alive that may somehow kind of represent um, sort of a biological proxy for the tissue that we can't get from their brain, right? That allows us a level of understanding of what's actually happening in their body while they're still alive. Um, There's new kind of approaches with um, viruses and gene therapy that allow us to kind of manipulate genes and pathways in vivo. Right now, we're only doing that in mice, but down the road, like for SMA, we may be able to use it in patients themselves. Um, there's, uh, you know, a whole host of new kind of genomic technologies that are le- allowing us to have kind of a more fine grained view of not just kind of what genes might be implicated, but when they're turned on and off and what pathways that might lead us to. So I think technology just is, I think, sort of an engine for innovation in science and biology in particular. And we really are in a technological revolution that I think will have its impact under a generation. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you are not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. Do you ever wonder how dating apps have shaped our ideas of love and romance and how they continue to do so? Whether technology is changing what we consider to be family? Do you really know what blockchain is and how it can revolutionize how we protect ourselves online? If any of these issues interest you, I have an exciting new podcast to share called You. It's hosted by writer and musician Claire L. Evans and brought to you by Okta. You explores how modern identity exists at the intersection of technology and humanity. In each episode, Claire speaks with renowned experts in the fields of science, technology, art, philosophy, and design. Her provocative questions uncover deep insight into how tech is changing the way we see ourselves, each other, and the world. In the first season, you covers everything from the algorithm of our hearts to virtual reality, digital assistance, and how internet fame can become internet shame. Listen to you wherever you get your podcasts and better understand how technology is affecting the private you, who you love, and more. So 
while it still seems that Alzheimer's disease is is really pretty intractable and we're still, even though we've spent decades researching it and we seem to know a lot, you know, we still, there's still these major holes, gaps of knowledge. Um, are there any neurodegenerative diseases where you feel more hopeful uh, about a potential reversal or treatment? Yeah, I mean, in general, I, I feel like that this period right now is kind of a time of reckoning for all of neurodegenerative disease. And so I would actually like classify myself this is hard to believe because I'm usually not the glass half full person as hopeful about Alzheimer's. I mean, in some ways, I think failures uh, like this, like the clinical trials failures or the need to just reassess where we're kind of funneling our basic science attention as well. I mean, it's not just clinical trials failures. Um, it, it, you know, that, that failure drives innovation. And so I think it's a really kind of exciting time. I mean, there's you know, new investment in Alzheimer's, both at the NIH. I mean, NIH, I think, has something like two and a half billion dollars a year to spend on Alzheimer's and related dementias. Um, despite, I think, the clinical trials failures, you know, sectors of pharma and certainly biotech are, are deeply invested, as well as, you know, other parts of, um, you know, the broader ecosystem. So funders, patient advocacy groups, investors, VCs. So, I mean, the kind of, you know, the will is there. You know, I think the other thing that makes me hopeful is that for other neurodegenerative conditions, that there is some promise. And so, I mean, one example I think that's quite exciting right now is ALS. So ALS, um, you know, is a neurodegenerative condition as well. It mainly affects motor neurons, but not exclusively. I mean, people think of it as an exclusively motor neuron disorder, but it's it's not. It is different than Alzheimer's in, in many ways, but similar in, in lots of others. And I think many of the issues kind of that we're thinking about in Alzheimer's, you know, we, we are also thinking about in ALS. So things like why are certain populations of neurons more susceptible than others? What's What are the genetic risk factors? Why do some people who um, have genetic risk factors get the disease and others don't. Um, it also involves inclusions, um, things like uh, tau, but other other types of inclusions. Let's just let's just sort of um, unpack inclusions. Yeah. People who, who aren't familiar. So inclusions, I mean, it would be another way of saying aggregates. So we talked earlier about amyloid aggregates, and sort of in general, these protein aggregates um, are a feature of of most neurodegenerative conditions. So in the case of Alzheimer's, it's it's primarily aggregates of proteins. Um, amyloid and tau. In the case of ALS, uh, there are inclusions that um, include both RNA and proteins. So proteins like TDP43, um, other kind of RNA binding proteins. Uh, in Parkinson's, we often uh, spend a lot of time talking about synuclein inclusion. So protein aggregation and kind of how you maintain normal protein homeostasis. So that process that makes sure that proteins are folded and then cleared appropriately is something that goes awry in most neurodegenerative conditions. So essentially you have like a buildup of misfolded proteins. That's right. And in the case of ALS, um, you know, it was also a field that really struggled. And then the genetics kind of opened up a window into some interesting biology a number of years ago that have really kind of focused people on a number of pathways that involve um, RNA. I mean, it's not probably worth going into the details of why that is, but that has opened up just a whole new window on what might cause ALS and ways that we might target it. Right now, there are clinical trials happening for ALS kind of from a number of different perspectives, but I think maybe the most exciting one actually has its origin in yet another neurodegenerative disorder. And this is one I think people have probably heard about in the last year or so. Uh, it's a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, and it's actually not a disease. Uh, there's forms of it that are um, also associated with adults, but the form that we're talking about is one that affects uh, young 
children, so toddlers. Um, often it's first diagnosed when um, infants are about 6 to 12 months old, and they develop basically atrophy of their muscular system. And it's uh, you know, also uniformly fatal. And the big uh, advance of the last year has been um, an antisense oligonucleotide targeting strategy that sort of raises the level of a protein that's sort of critical in SMA. And I think why the SMA, uh, both first the trials and now it's been FDA approved and there's kids who are, you know, effectively cured thanks wow. to this therapy. It's amazing. Um, and again, these are kids. So this is not a disease of aging, but it's a neurodegenerative condition. And I think the successes of the gene therapy of the ASOs for SMA really opened the windows to be able to kind of take similar approaches for other neurodegenerative conditions. There's trials now for ALS, uh, Huntington's. I think people are looking at certain kinds of frontal temporal dementia. It, you know, it's something that needs to be targeted to particular mechanisms, but it really kind of opens the door for uh, not just a new kind of therapy, but sort of really thinking about the biology that might make those therapies possible in a different way. You've now taken up a job with the CZI. What excites you about working for a sort of private initiative uh, that you that that makes you maybe feel that you could accomplish more than had you, you know, been in a traditional academic setting or, you know, tell us a little bit about sort of what's new in this particular initiative. Yeah, I mean, maybe I could take a little bit of a personal detour there. So um, so my background is I have a PhD in neuroscience. Um, I, I got my degree uh, up the street from where we're sitting right now at UCSF, where I was trained um, as a developmental neuroscientist. Actually, my background prior to that was um, as a cell biologist and uh, molecular biologist. So I didn't come into neuroscience as sort of thinking I'd be a neuroscientist. You know, I basically left academic research like almost 20 years ago, um, making a detour into science publishing, where I was editor of a journal called Neuron that published basic science research. And so I believe strongly in the value of basic science uh, for for understanding kind of who we are, um, how our bodies work, how biology works, and also for for therapeutics. And I think at Neuron, I got to kind of see the progression of fields over time. I mean, over the the 20 years that I was there and longer as a reader and kind of saw, you know, what I would say are silos. So I think neuroscience isn't uh, unique in this way, but there were just categories of neuroscience. There's, you know, there's development, there's molecular cellular neuroscience, there's systems neuroscience, there's cognitive neuroscience. And um, it always kind of amused me as an editor to see how kind of rigidly ingrained those silos were. I mean, even like I just I just recently <laughs> renewed my um, membership to the Society for Neuroscience and like they do the same thing. They're like, like in order to renew, they're like, OK, which of these boxes are you going to check? And it gets like me more and more specific. And I'm like, can't I just be interested in a number of different things? Can't we just like, you know, can, you know, can I eavesdrop on some of the other sessions on like, you know, birdsong, even though that's not what I study? It, it, I agree with you. I felt yeah. it feels very much like you're you know, you really get pigeonholed. Yeah. And to me, like, so as an as an editor, and maybe also as a scientist, the most interesting parts of um, neuroscience, but biology in general are at the interfaces, right, is is the sort of the interdisciplinary aspects or aspirations of science. It's, this is not just a neuroscience thing. So like thinking about, you know, in the case of neuroscience, like what might, you know, cognitive neuroscientists have to learn from molecular biologists? What might a, a computational biologist be able to teach an experimentalist? What can an engineer bring to the equation that maybe a molecular biologist would need to know? And um, that is what inspired me when I was an editor. And I think sort of CZI um, coming 
onto the scene and wanting to kind of also sort of address that issue of how do you create kind of more support for that interdisciplinary kind of collaborative science was exciting to me. Yeah. So let's talk about that because it's not an easy problem to solve. You know, I think a lot of people, I think I hear a lot of kind of, a, a lot of people call their programs interdisciplinary and, and, you know, there seems to be this push. Um, and oftentimes what I, what I see are people continuing to be in their silos. <laughs> um, yeah, but now, right. you know, like you've got an engineer who's sitting in the same office as a, a, a neurologist, but like they don't actually talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about what, what you feel um, you're going to do or you are doing differently. That's going to be more productive. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, to your point that I think sort of interdisciplinariness is it's almost a buzzword in science um, in now. And it's not just now. I mean, it's, I think, been decades of this. And so I think the the issue to me is really like, how can you go from being just kind of an aspirational term to something that people actually, you know, live and breathe and sort of incorporate into their work? And I, I think most scientists aspire to this. Um, I think there are some scientists who in their own work in person and maybe their lab they, they do this, but I think it's not the only way to have kind of interdisciplinary collaborations work. I think sort of bringing people together, you know, in physical spaces is something I think a lot of institutions are trying to, to do. I think at CZI, I mean, we don't, uh, we fund work and we partner with um, scientists and scientific organizations. We don't have our own physical space. The way that we um, kind of engender that type of collaboration is through funding and program work. And so in the case of neurodegeneration, I came at, to CZI to, you know, first kind of scope out what we might do in um, the neurodegenerative space. And the, I, the, you know, the mission of CZI is this long-term mission of um, supporting basic science to be able to accelerate science in order to cure, prevent, and manage all diseases. And the way we think about that is at this stage in that longer-term trajectory, um, that basic science is the foundation. And so what do we need to do to kind of make the way that science works now work better to be able to kind of impact those longer term clinical and translational goals? So can you tell me a little bit about um, a sort of specific project that, you know, like, um, you know, I think you guys are, are funders of someone like Bill Seeley. Yeah, so we so in the neurodegeneration space, the effort that we've launched the program with is something we're calling the Neurodegeneration Challenge Network. And I mean, the kind of, uh, you know, maybe cartoon version of what the Challenge Network is is aimed to be is, is something like a network that's more than the sum of its parts, so that we want to bring together a group of people who would bring their skills and expertise um, together to work on neurodegenerative diseases. So it's about people. It's about their ability to collaborate. They work together to develop, um, optimize, and then apply tools and technology. So everything from experimental tools to computational analytic tools. And then importantly, that, there, that we want this network to work in a way where the kind of impact of the network can be felt beyond the network. So developing tools and technologies, um, but importantly, disseminating them out to the broader community. Um, using this community to kind of pilot some ideas that we have and others have around open science so that we can maybe take those learnings out to the broader community. And so we launched this network with um, two open grant application calls. So something called, we call them requests for applications. And the reason why um, we decided to have an open call is because one of the, the ideas that we have is that the field just needs new ideas. And that, um, you know, we think of ourselves as pretty smart, but we don't know everyone who's got the best ideas. And so really having an open call, I think, democratizes the ability for those ideas to 
rise to the surface. So um, last year we had two open calls for applications. Uh, they were targeted towards both early career investigators, so investigators who would be running a lab at an academic institution, but be pretty early in their careers, which is, I think, an area where funding is hard to get and it's often hard to kind of pursue really um, novel creative ideas because often the expectation is to get funding, you might already have to have data or work in a field um, to prove your point. But what we wanted to attract was you know, a computational biologist who's never worked on neurodegeneration but has a great idea, an immunologist who would be great to kind of help us understand the role of the immune system in neurodegeneration, but who doesn't have any data on the immune system in neurodegeneration. So how do you get those people to apply? And the other half of the equation was um, collaborative teams where they could be any level of seniority. And um, importantly, where one member of that collaborative team needed to be um, a patient-facing clinician. And the reason why we felt that was important is because, you know, one, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? Um, we really, we're not trying to understand the biology of cartoon versions of these diseases. We want to understand the biology of real diseases. And so the clinicians in the network's role is really in kind of funneling our attention to the right questions. There's all sorts of work that happens in the basic science of disease processes that may be important, might be interesting, um, certainly is informative about the biology, but it may not be targeted to what we actually need to know in order to ultimately be able to treat those patients. So yeah, so 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 Bill would follow in that second category because yeah. yeah. as you're describing the first category, I was like, wait, this is a this is a neurologist who won the MacArthur Genius Award like ten years ago. <laughs> I don't think he has trouble getting funding, <laughs> but you know he has access to a huge patient population and he has really good ideas. So yeah. it sounds like he would be a good fit. So to have a sense of sort of uh, you know how CZI is is conceptualizing. Um, you know, creating opportunities and and funding kind of projects that w would have a, a kind of a pipeline. But I, I don't know yet exactly how this relates back to what you mentioned at the top of the show, which is that, you know, we're moving away from this view of a disembodied brain um, and towards this idea that we actually have to look at other organs in the body in order to understand what's going on in the brain. You talk a little bit about how you guys are approaching that issue. Yeah. So in creating this challenge network, I mean, what I told you about earlier was a lot about the type of people and groups that we wanted to, to bring into the network. Because again, I mean, the goal is to create a collaborative network. And I think just giving people money and saying, go collaborate is not enough. You need to bring in people of kind of the, the will um, and the desire to do that. And in fact, I think money is probably the least important thing to attract those types of people. So from a biological perspective, like in terms of how, where we want that challenge network to hone its attention is we put the call out for applicants specifically trying to reach groups that were studying areas that maybe aren't the core of where the attention neuroscience and neurodegeneration has been. And so we looked for, you know, cell biologists studying maybe cell biological mechanisms in other diseases or other parts of the body who might be able to apply something to neurodegeneration. We called out for immunologists, for people studying metabolism, for people thinking about issues like microbiome. And so really the, the way that we kind of shaped who came into the network was that call. It was specifically a reach out to both kind of especially early career investigators with new ideas, but also people in other fields who had new ideas that they wanted to bring to the table. And then really the idea is to have those groups work together. And I think the together is really important because, you know, the reality is an immunologist coming into the field who's never worked under generation before brings a lot to the table. But 
to be able to accelerate their work, they need to be paired or near somebody who knows that disease really deeply. And that's where the network comes into play. And we're already seeing that take shape. So uh, we had the, um, the open call in the selection process last year. We just came out of a kickoff meeting two months ago. Um, and uh, we brought together at that kickoff meeting the 48 labs we're funding and some trainees, so also trying to reach that next generation. And already there's collaborative projects that, you know, frankly, we couldn't have even thought about. It was just the connection that people made at the meeting, the ability to share tools, share ideas, and to be, you know, a part of, I think, sort of a fairly contained, trusted circle. Now, I think the, you know, the aspiration and I think the challenge for us is going to be like, well, what can we learn in this group that we can somehow kind of deploy to the larger community? And I think it's still early days, but I'm really hopeful that that there will be a lot of lessons learned. And I think especially around kind of tools and technologies and ways of applying them in these disease contexts that will be able to kind of affect the larger community. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have uh, loved ones who are suffering from some of these diseases. Um you know, what, what advice would you have for either them or, you know, their children, people who are looking at, uh, you know, facing some of these major issues down the line? Um, what do you think the future looks like for them? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing to say is, uh, I, I always um, tell people that there isn't anyone who isn't affected by a neurodegenerative disorder. So either um, you're, you will have a family member or a friend who's affected by one of these diseases, you yourself will have one of these diseases, or for all of us, we live in a society where kind of, if not the financial impact, then also just the societal impact of having that kind of suffering out there impacts us, right? So I think this is not just a research problem or a, you know, a health system problem or a biotech pharma problem. It's everyone's problem. So I think kind of mobilizing um, our, you know, our society and our societal resources to kind of put more muscle behind these disorders um, should be on everybody's, um, you know, front line. Uh, I think there's a lot of great work that's done by the patient advocacy groups. You know, a number of them are groups that we're also in contact with. We were lucky to have a number of patients and patient advocates at our kickoff meeting. I would love to see some of that patient advocacy work also break down its silos to go away from being an advocacy group that only advocates for funding for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or ALS or FTD and really come together and take the lesson of SMA. SMA owes, I think, that progress to the SMA Foundation who really kind of, you know, kind of kept the, the rigor behind the biology efforts for decades. I mean, they kept it going and they, I think, get all the credit for the clinical trials success. And what we learn from SFA, SMA will be incredibly informative for the other diseases. And so I think by coming together collectively, you know, scientists, researchers, clinicians, and advocates around kind of a common need around neurodegeneration, I think is a win-win. Well, catch it, bros. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. If any of you, like me, have a loved one who's recently encountered one of these devastating diagnoses and don't know where to turn, reach out to the advocacy groups, Alzheimer's disease organizations or frontotemporal dementia organizations, or those that connect patients, caregivers, and clinicians who have or are struggling with ALS. 
So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Whatever struggles you are facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.